Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Uh, as Kevin mentioned, we are in the second week of a series called the Mago Dei, or the Image of God. And uh, we're looking at the ideas of kingdom and sexuality and covenant and the importance of those themes. So if you're visiting for the first time, get ready. It's Sexuality Week, part two. And uh, we'll be talking about this for a full month. Um, what I want to do is just kind of recap a little bit because... Um, for those of us that missed it, but also just uh, by way of reference to what we talked about last week. Uh, week one was really a big picture narrative of how the Bible speaks about or discusses sexuality. It was also a bit of a commentary on how we as a community can think about the Bible. Uh, it is absolutely vital for us to have a good understanding of how the scriptures speak specifically in a larger narrative way, what is often referred to as like a biblical theological framework of ideas or topics within the text before we actually understand what it's trying to say at a more micro level in specific verses or paragraphs, right? So we looked last week at this bigger biblical theological framework. And uh, just as way of reminder, uh, everything that we covered today, last week, all of it is on uh, the website at www.new-community.com backslash Imago Day. If you go there, everything will be there. All these same slides uh, in case you need to be reminded of them. So last week we talked about uh, three things in particular. Uh, the first one being this, uh, the redemptive trajectory of Scripture. I think you'll remember this image. What the Scriptures is doing is calling us progressively forward toward redemption and calling us to live out the fullest expression of the kingdom ethic in the now. That one sentence summarizes about 10 minutes of me talking last week. So you might want to refer back to it. The, the scriptures is moving us to an ultimate ethic and each section of the scripture keeps calling us more and more toward redemption. That continues into our present day reality as well. At the same time, last week, we talked about a narrowing ethic of sexuality. Uh, as far as the ethic of sexuality or sex and sexuality goes, over time, as the narrative speaks about it in more narrow terms, it actually becomes more redemptive the way that the scriptures speaks of it. So it calls for monogamy, for covenant, for rightly ordered sexual values, all of that stuff we talked about last week. There is still a deep importance, and it describes that in such a way that the ethic of sexuality narrows. The third thing we discussed that was vital to this big picture idea was the fact that we are a centered set community. There's a difference between churches that are more bounded set, which is they create these boundaries and call people to be in or out of those boundaries, and those that are inviting, which we are, inviting people, ourselves included, into an orientation around Jesus. That Jesus is the center of everything and we're calling everyone to know love and confirm the importance of who God is. And so in that calling to that which is central, we would say that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, all of the metaphors that the scripture uses are all pointing us back to this idea that 
God is central. So things like God being the source of life or him being the living water, the great I am, the guide, the comforter, the way, the truth, the life, all of those are different metaphors describing this very powerful reality that we are invited into a deep knowing relationship with God at the center of everything. And so instead of defining our community about what we're against or for, we define our community by what is at the center and we invite everyone to come to the center. So we talked about these ideas last week. This week, what I wanna do is start with another illustration. I think uh, pictures can be helpful for us to understand where we're going. And so we'll use this as way of intro before we get into the text this morning. Uh, when New Community speaks of theology, when it starts to describe certain topics, one of the frameworks we have used in the past has been the circles of theology. This has been an illustration that has kind of served as a guide for our community, and uh, in many ways has been helpful for us in teasing out theological ideas, and I think will be a very helpful guide for us as we continue to move uh, forward. And typically when any church or any individual speaks to the idea of theological ideas of importance, most ideas are categorized in these three ways as either dogma, doctrine, or opinion. Another word for that would be preference. So I'll give you just a little uh, reminder for those that uh, heard this several years back. Dogma is the beliefs or the truths that would be considered essential to the gospel. So without these, Christianity would cease to be Christianity as we know it. That's labeled as dogma. So for example, creedal theology, any of the creeds that describe the core fundamentals of faith. And all of those are describing things that would be typically called salvific in nature, meaning they pertain to the idea of salvation. How do we have relationship with God or how do we not have that? That all fits into what would be considered dogma. The second circle that you notice is doctrine. A doctrine is a set of beliefs that are considered important without being essential to faith. And I want to repeat that. Doctrine are ideas that are important, but not essential to faith. Wikipedia, the great guide that it is, defines doctrine as this, a codification of beliefs or a bodies taught principles or positions. So again, for example, Calvinist or Wesleyan systems of theology, forms of baptism, the active nature of the Holy Spirit, whether someone has free will or not. Um, all of those kinds of topics would fit into what would be considered doctrine. Now, doctrine has often been uh, defined in some ways as the defining line for the church. So some churches will exclude themselves from other churches simply because they have different doctrinal positions. And it, it has been used by bounded set churches to define who is in or who is out. That is doctrine, again, important but not essential. The final category is opinion or preference. A belief would be uh, categorized as opinion or preference when it is considered interesting, but in no means important. So relatively important to the life or the nature of the church. Now, 
There, the reason it's considered opinion or preference is because there are a lot of different ranges on people's thinking or belief about these issues of preference. And most of them aren't worthy of a lot of deep discussion uh, as the church as a whole. Now, granted, there are some churches that still hold these ideas of opinion so deeply that they become dividing lines. But I'll give you a few examples. Consuming or abstaining from alcohol, political preferences, gambling, use of marijuana, women wearing head coverings, the practice of Sabbath, types of food consumed or abstained from. All of those would fit into categories of preference or opinion. So hopefully you get a picture of what we've talked about years ago in terms of the way people think of theological ideas. Now, I would like to adjust this a little bit for New Community because I think the way we kind of look at the idea of theology is a little bit different. And so I want to give you a new picture of that. So for us, that center being the cross is still dogma. All right. Newcom has had a very clear articulation of the central components of faith. In our almost 30-year history, Newcom has never deviated in our posture from the most central things. I'll give you a quick list. The person of the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, the incarnation, the death and bodily resurrection of Jesus, the communion of believers, of the saints, the forgiveness of the sins of the world, and the eternal life that Christ offers. This will continue to be our guiding light to our community and the centered set that we continue to call people back to. These are core fundamental dogma for us as a community, which takes us to doctrine. If we can go back to that image, perfect. Now you'll notice in this particular slide that the doctrine circle is both smaller than the previous one and it is dotted, all right? That is for several reasons. First, it is smaller because many of the things that typically the church has defined as what keeps someone in or out are doctrines that we would hold to believe are more preference or opinion related to a th theology meaning they don't fit in our most central doctrinal statements. They would sit outside of that in an area of preference or opinion. And so they would not be things that new community would divide over or divide with another community over. It's dotted for two primary reasons. Number one, because everyone has a difference of opinion as to what raises to the level of great importance. What raises to the level of something that's deep doctrine versus something that's just practical opinion. So for example, some would consider the issue of just war or nonviolence to be just simply an issue of opinion where others in our community would say they hold so strongly to it that it would be a matter of doctrine. The difference is that for some it's one and for others it's another one, so it's dotted because you might put it in and someone else might put it out, right? The second reason it's dotted is because as much as we might not want to admit this or not, the doctrine circle, I believe, tends to grow or shrink over the course of one's lifetime, meaning that it's constantly growing, changing, shifting, bending, uh, and it in no way stays static. 
Again, we like to think that it does in our lives, but if you look back over the last 10, 15 years of your life, you'll notice there's subtle changes to what you consider important enough to put into the doctrine category and that which you consider not as important. Now, that changes because of changed mindset. It changes because of adjusted lived experience. It could change because um, you've got a renewed focus on faith, all kinds of reasons. But the idea is it is shifting and moving because some ideas um, have the freedom to move in and out of importance for you. And so it's dotted for that reason. The rest for new community would fit into the category of opinion or preference. Everything else that you can think of fits into that particular category. Now let me pause here for a second before we move on. New community has spent over the last several years a lot of time, energy, uh, and focus on helping us as a community to recognize that anything that's in those outer two circles is not something that should in any way impact loving community, right? So what I mean by that is you can be in a wildly different place than someone else with an area of preference or a particular doctrine, and yet worship together in this context, do life together, be involved in group together, be in a covenant community together, because those things don't impact loving community. Anything in the categories of doctrine or preference sit in spaces that allow us, with Christ at the center, to have what we would remind you of is unity without uniformity and diversity without fragmentation. That's something we brought up several times. I'll say it again, that as long as Christ is central, then we can stand in unity without uniformity and diversity without fragmentation. Got it? So that's my way of introduction. With that said, we're going to talk about same-sex relationships in the church. Great. Nice pause, everyone. <laughs> Deep breath in. Okay, good. Now, um, again, all of that was background. Here we go. There are three common positions related to how the church approaches the issue of LGBTQ inclusion. As you read that sentence, I would say that there is something inside of you that should well up with a little bit of sadness. I think one of the church's greatest faults in this particular conversation is that we have treated this as an issue and not as a people. Our gay brothers and sisters are not an issue. They are our brothers and sisters. They are our friends. They are our aunts and uncles, our coworkers, our accountability partners, our neighbors, and our children. I think it is appropriate to state from the beginning that the church as a whole has gotten this wrong. We have not seen the Imago Dei or the image of God in our brothers and sisters and instead treated them like an issue. And on behalf of the church at large, I think it is fair to pause for a moment and offer an apology. 
And I want to do that now, but I also want us to be aware that by no means will this apology bring healing to deep wounds that have continued to be reopened. It will not cover over a history of hurt, but my hope is that it will be received with grace. To our gay brothers and sisters in the room, as well as those who at some point might listen to this recording. On behalf of the church, we offer our sincerest apologies. For every time that someone in the church, including myself, has hurt you because of who you are or who you love, we're deeply sorry. We acknowledge the hurt that you have experienced and we hurt with you. We know that apologies are often lip service, so we want you to know that we also wish to do more than apologize. We hope to deeply and loudly affirm your sacred worth and are committed to pursuing God's love and justice with you, your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not an issue, but a people. So let me put that phrase up there again. Three common positions related to how the church welcomes our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Some churches take the position that same-sex relationships should be treated as dogma. Those churches, and I want to read this so I can get the language correct, those churches that hold that position typically believe that LGBTQ orientation is a sin and its practice is outside of God's desires. A church that believes this typically excludes LGBTQ people and does not believe that they can be Christians unless their orientation is converted. It is placed within the most central elements of faith, and some churches even tie one's eternal destiny to this position. Other churches view same-sex relationships as a matter of doctrine. Churches that hold this position believe that LGBTQ behavior is not within God's will, but that orientation itself is not of, of sin or not a matter of sin or salvation. A church that believes this includes LGBTQ Christians, but does not affirm same-sex marriage. There may also be limitations regarding participation within certain leadership capacities or, partici or participation in the sacraments unless lifelong celibacy is chosen. Other churches view same-sex relationship as a matter of preference or opinion. Churches that hold this position believe that LGBTQ orientation and behavior are within God's will. A church that believes this fully includes LGBTQ Christians in the church with full participation and affirms participation in the sacrament of marriage. Now, those are the generally held positions. I'm not saying that there is no nuance in any of those positions and that each church might say it does not just exactly fit into one of those particular categories. But 
Typically, those are the varying positions. Then what happens generally in the public is that churches are usually defined by our binary culture as either for or against gay relationships and marriage. Newcom's approach can best be described as a third-way approach. Our desire would be to provide a way of peace predicated on Romans 14, where the Apostle Paul calls the Roman church to live into unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials, and in all things love or charity. This third-way approach means several things, and I want to be really clear on these. First, we reject the idea that the Scriptures say that same-sex attraction itself is a sin or a matter of salvation. We will never speak in terms of same-sex relationships being an issue of dogma. To hold it in that regard is to add to the gospel, and we reject that position. Newcom would squarely hold to the idea that LGBTQ Christians' orientation and behavior fit into matters, either matters of doctrine or preference. What we mean by that is some in our community likely regard same-sex orientation and relationships as a matter of doctrine, while others in our community relate to it as a matter of preference. This is part of what it means to be a community always in the process of midrash or the teasing out of our faith and practice. If you remember, just a few weeks ago, John Pell spoke on that idea of midrash, that we collectively as a community are teasing out the way we practice and live our faith. Since it is a disputable matter, in order to create a third way or a middle way, New Community has taken a posture to allow all in the community to live into the fullness of their spirit-held convictions. Regardless, if you hold this matter, if this is a matter of doctrine or preference, we will create the space for both viewpoints to exist together in community. However, and this is very important, freedom will be given to all. In light of this posture, New Community acknowledges the following realities for our community, and this is what I'm going to take a few minutes to tease out in the Scriptures. We are all invited to the banqueting table. We are all invited by the Spirit into full participation. And we are all invited by Jesus into worship and discipleship. So we'll start with the first one. We are all, every one of us, invited to the banqueting table. The Scriptures has uh, a lot of language of invitation. It is constantly inviting us into things. And one of the most beautiful pictures that I believe the Scriptures has for invitation is that of a banqueting table. This ginormous table available for all of us to sit, to eat, to enjoy one's company, to be together. And it's one of the most compelling pictures and uh, everyone, as the scriptures would communicate, is welcome. And Jesus is the one giving this invitation. You see it throughout the scriptures. And the psalmist gives a really interesting picture to the banqueting table that I'd like to discuss for a moment. It's a picture found in Psalm 23. You can turn there if you'd like, or it'll also be on the screen. 
In Psalm 23, and I'm not going to read through all of it for the sake of time, all of us know that David is writing and defining or describing the Lord as his shepherd, the one who cares for him, the one that comforts him. And near the end of that, and I'll read this part, he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, each of those little phrases are going to appear on the screen here in a moment, but each of those phrases is part of the invitation. And this is what I find so compelling about this verse. It says, you prepare a table before me. The banqueting table has already been set. God is in anticipation of our arrival, of your arrival. And God desires nothing more than for us to join him. All are welcome at the table. He goes on to say, you've anointed my head with oil. So what awaits is this welcoming oil poured over each of us lavishly. And that oil is a sign in the scriptures of respect and full acceptance. It's a sign of blessing. He goes on to say that the banquet is a banquet of great blessing. He describes it so much so that the cup is overflowing. I mean, the table's overflowing, the cup is overflowing, that all of this goodness that is being offered is being offered in abundance. God's abundant provision and His protection surround us on all sides. And then he says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. The invitation is just the start. What he goes on to say is that his extravagant and unconditional love will define his continued presence with us. That he is always inviting, that he is always extravagant in his love. And then finally, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The imagery of the psalmist is not simply temporal, that we show up for the table like we do at Thanksgiving, we come and we go, that this is an eternal invitation. The goodness and the mercy and the loving kindness of God is eternal, and His hospitality is everlasting. This banqueting table is a sign of God's unconditional acceptance and unmerited favor. And it is an invitation, as we know, that requires no merit of our own. As the Scriptures say, it is by grace alone. This is the invitation that we have been given. And our community extends that invitation to anyone who desires to worship Christ with us. Secondly, we are all invited by the Spirit into full participation. I'm going to share a passage out of Acts. Acts 26, or Acts 8, 26 through 40. Uh, some of this might be familiar to you because I've shared it before. And if uh, October 27, 2013 comes to mind and you recall that talk, I apologize. If, uh, if you don't recall it, pretend this is brand new and uh, I never said any of it before. Uh, the text says this to begin. Um, let's go back. Now, angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. 
Now, a couple things happen here. First, you're introduced to the first main character, which is Philip. The second thing, you're told the instructions that Philip's been given by the Holy Spirit. He is supposed to leave where he's at. He's supposed to go toward Gaza, which would be an awkward invitation for God to give because Gaza has been destroyed for over a hundred years. So what he's, the Spirit is saying is go to the desolate places, go to the outskirts, go to a place that's been dead for a hundred years. That's where I want you to head. The Spirit makes no sense sometimes, but we know that the Spirit is up to something. The text goes on to say that there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. We are introduced to the second main character, the Ethiopian eunuch. He's given no name, just the descriptors Ethiopian and eunuch. Here's what we know about him based on the description. First, that he's a foreigner to the land of Israel, that he would be African, that he comes uh, with some class about him. What I mean by that is he's powerful enough to ride in a chariot, and he's an official. He's in charge of the financial accounts for the queen. So he has some class, some substance to him. He also has some status. He would have been considered incredibly wealthy, not just because he's riding with the queen or with the queen's chariot, but because he has his own scroll of Isaiah. Back then, scrolls, you were at best lucky to have a scroll for a whole community or a whole town. It was an incredibly prized asset. So for him to have his own pocket version of the Isaiah scroll would have been significant. He was wealthy. He had means. We also know that he was educated. He was reading on his own. So there's a lot about this man we know, but then we also are given this really delicate, private information that we kind of just read through and go, oh yeah, okay, he was a eunuch. No biggie, right? But that was pretty personal information. That means that he was sexually incomplete or inferior. That's how he would have been defined by the community he lived in. And Luke makes a special point to make sure we're aware of this by, in these short verses, mentioning it five times. It's as if he's like, well, the Ethiopian, I mean, eunuch, right? Eunuch, 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 five times, so that we don't miss the point that he is a eunuch. Now, those are the things we know. Here's something I think we can assume based on the fact that the eunuch was just returning from Jerusalem, where he went on spiritual pilgrimage to worship at the temple, we can assume that he would have been familiar with a passage, a fond passage for many of us, I'm sure, in Deuteronomy 23.1, which says this, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. I know you probably don't have that memorized. <laughs> this, this is... Uh, what the law does is it strictly forbids the eunuch from entering the assembly of the Lord. Another way of saying that is he is strictly forbid from entering the temple. So the temple had many like areas. So if you were a Jewish male, you'd be in close to the center. Only the priest and only the chief priest could be into the Holy of Holies. 
Then the most sacred areas were the priests, then the male Jewish members. Then you go further out, those that might be a little bit outside of that or less acknowledged, not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees. Then you go further, the women are allowed in. And then you go further, and then you get slavery or slaves allowed in. Then you go further, and then you get to the Ethiopian eunuch. Okay? That's kind of the progression of how far removed he is from the presence of God. Due to his sexual situation, the Ethiopian eunuch was understood to be an outsider and not included in the community of faith. So the text goes on to tell us that Philip and the eunuch begin to have a conversation, and there's a lot of questions that come up with very few answers. In fact, zero answers. They're all questions. The text says this, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah. The prophet asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scriptures that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. Now, you and I understand this passage to be prophetic. We understand that because we sit in a different time in history. We understand that this side of the cross, it is describing a picture of Jesus being led to give his very life for you and I. But there's a good chance the eunuch may have understood it differently. He may have been, like we do with many scriptural stories, have been placing himself in the story. Is this about the prophet? Could it be about me? Who who can relate to this particular passage? Maybe the experience that was described actually mirrored his own experience, meaning that he was brought before the shearer, He faced humiliation. He was treated unjustly. He was singled out. And he was different than others. The eunuch might have felt this passage was in some way telling his story. The story of another person who was powerless. Powerless in his loss of sexual identity. Known because of his difference. Not able to live fully. Questioned by his religion and excluded from the community. As we go further in the text, it says this, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he, Philip, baptized him. So he asks the question, What prevents me from being baptized. Now, if you're Philip, the answer could be like everything prevents you, actually. Your race prevents you. Your religion prevents you. Your class among the Jewish people prevents you. Your own body 
prevents you. Everything about this Ethiopian eunuch made him an outsider to the people of God. And likely, he's asking this question because he's already been prevented from entering or being included in the temple. He's already been kept out from the community of faith. So many rules about what is allowed, what is appropriate, what is acceptable. And maybe the eunuch already learned about religious intolerance and exclusion firsthand. So the eunuch asks, what prevents me from being baptized? And the answer, not stated by Philip in words, but simply in action, is nothing. What prevents you from full participation? The answer is nothing. New community is a community open to the full participation of everyone in the life and the faith of the church. Everyone is invited to full participation in the mission, leadership, service, and sacraments of this community of faith. Which takes us to our third and final point. We are all invited by Jesus into worship and discipleship. So the passage continues and it concludes like this. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried it Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself moving on, preaching the gospel into all the towns. The text tells us a few things. One, that the response of the eunuch was worship. That he went away rejoicing. That he went away knowing that from that point forward, he was adopted into the family of God. And the posture of his life was toward worship. For Philip, the mission continued. I love this, but the text goes on to say that he carried on preaching the gospel in all the towns. He continued to be about making disciples. The calling of everyone at New Community is to continue to be a people and a community that never forgets its calling. That we are invited by Jesus to continue to worship, to make the orientation of our life the living sacrifice of worship to God, and to always be people on mission. We are called to continue to make disciples and to share the love of Jesus with everyone we meet. These are our invitations. Let me remind you that we are all invited to the banqueting table, that we are all invited by the Spirit into full participation, and that we are all invited by Jesus into worship and discipleship. In light of this, we have edited our welcoming statement to be more fully reflective of the invitations that we stated today. And what I want to do is read that for you. I believe it will also be on the screen. New community is a place where the grace and peace that comes with knowing God is available to everyone. A place where all are welcome, all of us. Whatever your age, race, culture, gender, marital status, sexual orientation, religious tradition, or different abilities, you are welcome. Whether you have money or not, whether you have a degree or not, whether you have a home or not, whether you have a strong faith or no faith, or perhaps a million questions about faith, you are welcome. You are welcome here because you are a child of God, worthy of God's love and grace. Nothing you have done or left undone can change that. 
New Community is committed to being a thoroughly loving community of faith centered in the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome all to full participation in the life of the church and encourage people of all backgrounds, experiences, and perspectives to join us as we seek Christ together. Let me pray. Then uh, we will spend a few more minutes worshiping God in song. And then I'm going to come up and just kind of wrap up a few thoughts uh, before we have a time of benediction. All right? Let me pray. God, we covered a lot this morning. I know in this whole series uh, there may uh, be feelings that we're uh, covering maybe more than it even feels like it's possible in a given um, period of time. And so, God, may we as a community wrestle with these ideas. May we continue to dialogue and discuss and learn from one another. But may we also fully accept the invitation that you have given to us that we then extend to any and everyone, that we have been invited to your banqueting table, that we have the opportunity to sit with you at your feet, we have the opportunity to eat with you, and someday when the kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven, we will enjoy a feast with you. We will celebrate with you and we will honor you as king in all of your fullness. God, we also have been invited into a space where we are all able to participate, that you have asked us to make disciples, that you've called us into worship. Those are things that we are all invited into. And so God, may we be a community that always extends that grace to everyone. I pray that this morning, as these ideas and these thoughts from your word challenge us, may we continue to listen to your spirit, may we continue to grow as a community, and may most of all, we honor and love you with our very lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.